When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com podcast. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been sharing big ideas from creative and curious minds. The Think Again podcast takes us out of our comfort zone, surprising our guests and me, your host, with ideas that we didn't necessarily come here prepared to discuss. I am so happy to be here today with Teju Cole. He's a Nigerian-born writer, photographer, and art historian. He's the author of the novel Open City and the novella Every Day is for the Thief. He's also the photography critic of the New York Times Magazine, and his new book is a collection of essays about things read, seen, and experienced. It's called Known and Strange Things. Welcome to Think Again. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So I wanted to start with a section from your new book, Known and Strange Things. And the book is divided into three parts, uh, as I said, things read, seen, and experienced. So literary criticism, analysis of photography or ideas about photographs, and then things that have happened to you Mm -hmm. in your life, and those kind of blend and overlap as well. But uh, this is from a conversation that you had with uh, the writer Alexander Hemon. How do I actually say his name properly? I I say Hemon. Hemon, okay. And you guys, you know, you were on your way to a book reading or some kind of literary event and you became friends as a result of this conversation in the car. So he asks you, what attracts you to cities? You've written about cities a great deal. And he says, is it that cities are more conducive to nonlinear narratives or is it that nonlinear narrators end up in cities? And this is your response. Halfway through writing Open City, I thought to myself that I should learn some of New York history properly. So I bought a stack of worthy books and started to read them. But you know what? Doing that offended the sense of drift I relied on for my novel. The books were too systematic, too knowledgeable. So I just went back to my previous method, relying on the things I already knew, walking around aimlessly and filling in facts and figures later as needed. The thing had to breathe, it, it, had to, it had to drift, and it had to pretend not to know where it was going. A dancer in mid-dance can't think too much about her legs. 
As for cities in general, I think they might be our greatest invention. They drive creativity, they help us manage resources, and they can be hives for tolerance. In a village, you can't stick out too much. In the city, if anyone judges you, you can tell them to go to hell. So there's a positive side. But the other side is that uh, cities are simply uh, so congested with material history and the spiritual traces of those histories, including some very dark events. So um, Alexander Himon's Chicago is haunted by the Chicago of the late 19th century and early 20th century, the Chicago of innovation and of systematic exclusions. Rural landscapes can give the double illusion of being eternal and newly born, but cities are marked with specific architecture from specific dates, and this architecture, built by long-vanished others for their own uses, is the shell that we climb into, like hermit crabs. So I had mentioned four cities, New York, New Orleans, Rio de Janeiro, and Lagos. Right. Those are four that are important nodes in the transatlantic uh, slave trade and in black life in the century that followed that slave trade. So I describe them as the vertices of a sinister quadrilateral. There is this sense in so much of your work about kind of belonging and not belonging, like going to places and even the things that are meant to be familiar, mm -hmm. even the things that belong to you, standing outside of them, feeling alien from them, recognizing the ways in which you both own and belong to and don't, you know. Precisely. I mean, so I'm, I think I am very haunted by this question of what belongs to us and where do we decide that we are at home? Is that something that precedes our existence on that particular scene? Or is it like, is it a process of creating an imagined community, something that we have to construct uh, for ourselves? And I think it's, it's probably closer to the latter for me, that the world is not a settled gift, right. but that something about belonging and ownership has to be contested, belonging has to be negotiated constantly. And maybe this has to do with being an African in the world, and being an African moving through spaces that are majority white spaces very often. Right. And so there's already sort of the exclusion that is presumed in those situations. Like even when you're let in, you don't own it. Right. And so I, it helps me to think about what do we mean when we say somebody actually sort of owns something, you know? Right. Um, I think inevitably a black person in America would sort of think about capitalism a little bit different from what a non-black person might think of it, particularly what a white person might think. Um, because the question of who controls the means of production right. is actually at the very heart of a black experience in this country. The black body was the means of production yeah, that was owned by somebody else. So for me, the question of belonging is not something that's seeking a simple solution of like, yes, you do belong. Sure. It's more like, what are the provisional means by which I can make sense of the spaces in which I'm in? Not pure alienation, but just to understand that there can be some kind of provisional solution to being in a space. Do you think that there is some kind of, there should be some kind of historical goal of some form of homecoming? I mean, like some end to diaspora, mm -hmm. some mm -hmm. actual 
belonging that is more belonging than the, than the half belonging that we're talking about. For sure, there's some kind of multiplicity in that possible future ideal vision. But what it means is that then the relationship that people have to land has changed radically. Right. And the relationship they have to language has changed radically. So if you have some child who traces her ancestry to Yoruba and Navajo yeah. and, you know, and Polish and Arab, that child is actually not really Yoruba in the sense that we are familiar with and may not even be able to lay claim to that terrain and most likely has not been raised in that unitary sense of that terrain. Sure. That child might have just lived her entire life in Beirut or in Berlin. So what does it mean for her to be fully at home? I guess maybe she would be fully at home in Berlin. But the end point is that even people who are pure Germans, right, right. white Germans, sure. don't necessarily have a deeper claim on that land than she does. Right. And that's where we're eventually going to go through. But you know, there are many countries that are maybe moving, albeit slowly, towards that multicultural model. Japan might not be necessarily the place you look to for that. No, probably not. Or Nigeria might not be the place you look to for that. But, you know, New Zealand, Canada, the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, right. are places where this thinking is starting to happen. I think in a, in a much less ad advanced way, maybe places like France as well, and then Germany, but much more behind. But like right. a place like Canada is would maybe, you know, when we're talking about the future, futuristic <laughs> ideas, we're thinking of, you know, Abu Dhabi on the one hand, or we're thinking of maybe even places like New York City or Tokyo. Right. But demographically, Canada might be the most futuristic of nations. Maybe so. Because just going through that thinking of not only what does the population look like, but what does participation in statecraft look like? What does participation in the conversation a country is having with each other? What does that look like? I think they're a little right. bit farther ahead than the United States is. What does the sense of sort of belonging to or coming from that place? What like? is a real Canadian? Yeah, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. Interesting. But I suppose, like, I wonder whether then we will cling to sort of other bits and fragments of identity, you know? I mean, I, if the connection to land ceases to be the way right. in which we try to define ourselves. Yes. To, and, and, <laughs> and with land, to ancestral prerogatives and to right. uh, sort of like genetic, right. you know, sort of connections right. to a particular lineage. Yeah. Then, yeah, then what do we hang on to? Then I don't know, yeah, I guess that, know, I mean, that, that may also depend on the extent to which we're able to like alter our genetic code or our like brains by yeah, pharmaceuticals little, or whatever. For sure, but a little, one of the things we do hang on to, other than the, you know, sort of the somewhat shoddy surfaces of contemporary hypercapitalism, right. by which I mean, you know, McDonald's and Starbucks, sure. and everybody watching the same Hollywood movie, but then the established liberal constitutional order, versions of which we find in many of these different countries, then becomes a common language. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea that there is a push towards a, an ever more liberal idea of the collective space, right. where somebody cannot say, well, gay people can't marry because my religion forbids it. That's not the future. <laughs> right. The future is like, they, 
everybody will probably all do what they want as long as they're not infringing anybody else's rights. So, I mean, I think there's a, actually a bit of a libertarian f tinge to what that ideal future could look like. Hmm. But then part of the emerging conversation is also that collectively, and therefore through the ages of our governments, there is such a thing as social responsibility. So I actually so think there has to be a sort of a, a state, a sec, maybe a secular state guaranteeing those things above above. I, can, I, I don't want to imagine any version of the future <laughs> that is not. If it's a state, it damn well better be a secular <laughs> state. Yeah. But then we'll probably also move beyond the state in in various ways. You know, to the extent that the EU succeeds and fails, that kind of experiment is actually part of what our future could also look like. The, the nation state gradually could and should probably become obsolete. And I think I'll, I'll tie up this initial conversation with a very beautiful quote, uh, again, from your new book, Known in Strange Things. I, I believe this is in the, the section where you, the, the chapter about um, Brazil, you're visiting Brazil. Mm -hmm. You're there and you're thinking about the slave trade and you're thinking about the ways in which Nigerian culture is present in Brazil still yeah. and has filtered through it. And you say, a blood knot ties each of us to ancient acts of violence. I am unhappy and at home. Yes. <laughs> that is a line that is, uh, um, it's a very elusive book and my work is very elusive. And that very last phrase is from a poem by Seamus Heaney. Hmm where he writes about the bog people visiting Denmark, where all these bodies were found. Right. Um, people who had been killed in ritual sacrifice back in the um, prehistoric times. And uh, he somehow got interested in this subject. And, it, and the line, I can't remember it exactly, but it was like, you know, out here in the man-killing parishes, I will feel lost, unhappy and at home. So, you know, this idea that whatever version of home we're constructing for ourselves, it can't be uncomplicated. But um, yeah, I'm always sort of quoting poets. <laughs> you, you hear a line and you sort of throw it in there. Yeah, there's a moment in, yeah. um, in uh, Every Day is for the Thief yeah. in which you talk about, you basically borrow a, a line from, from Andace, right? Or from Andace, yes, Andace. I also, yes, absolutely. And, and, yes. You say that, uh, and you say that like, I'm, I'm telling this memory and then you're yeah. like, but it's not my memory, it's from yes. a book. And then, yes. yeah. and then it's like, but it's no less real <laughs> for being filtered through. Yeah. A literary experience. I think yeah. that's very beautiful. Thank um, you very much. So on that note, let's move to the second part of the show, uh, which is the surprise conversations where I, neither you nor I, have been prepared for the clips that we're about to see. Okay, this is Virginia Heffernan, who's the author of Magic and Loss. And the clip is titled, Why the Internet is the Greatest Achievement of Any Civilization Ever, which is quite an assertion. Let's see how she backs that up. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline.
I see the internet as the great masterpiece of human civilization to which we're all contributing all the time, the nearly four billion of us with wireless access across the globe. And the reason I call it art is that the building blocks of this enterprise, the internet, seem obscure. It seems like this must be the tubes or code or a complex surveillance state or operation of various huge tech companies. In fact, what we're looking at and interacting with are ancient forms, including text and short form text that, you know, for centuries has been known as lyric poetry and uh, two-dimensional images that bear a lot of resemblance to frescoes and even cave drawings. We see on YouTube, we see performance and music that might have belonged to the ancient Greeks. Rather than see us as going to more coarseness and barbarism with the internet, I see this as, um, as increasing civility, increasing organization, and, incre and, and, and a, a natural progress of civilization. Do you, what is your kind of, do you have a sense of the kind of historical arc of where we are heading? Well, I mean, I think this question, I, I can't remember if she said the greatest invention or the greatest innovation. Now, first of all, you know, that was the title of the video, which was probably made by our editorial team right. here. So in, in, in fairness, in fairness to her, Heffernan, she did not actually defend actually that particular. She uh, said it was that, the greatest that, yeah. invention of humanity. She, she didn't try to, like, die on that hill. <laughs> um, she was praising it very much, but she wasn't saying it was the greatest thing we've ever done. Not necessarily. Just that, well, just that it's like a natural progression. It's taking us to some, I think she yeah. is. I mean, she ended up walking it a little bit, walking it back a little bit into saying it's actually not that bad because it contains all this great stuff. Right. Which is quite different from saying it's the greatest thing we've ever done. Right. Um, but I mean, I think that question, what is the greatest thing we've ever done? You That's know, interesting. You could sort of like open that up uh -huh. and just say, you know, we have some sort of obvious candidates like agriculture, cities, which had sort of, of course, had to be invented. The first cities like Chattel Hoyuk in uh, Anatolia. Turkey, yeah, and what's now Turkey. Did not have streets. It was just a cluster of <laughs> buildings right next to each other, and they moved by ladders and on rooftops. Oh, wow. So you've got a road in the countryside, right? But for something to be a street, it has to be among buildings. Right. And that had to be invented. Sure. So cities are great inventions. They, they help us solve many other things. And written music is a very wonderful and peculiar form of magic. And so, of course, is writing itself. But it might be even deeper than writing is uh, poetry, uh, whether it's written or not, because of the tremendous help that it has given to humans through the ages. Not only did we come up with language, but at some point we started to use vast tracts of memorized language to give an account of our place in the universe. Right. So for me, that might be the second greatest thing we ever did. Interesting. My understanding, yeah. so when I think of poetry, like what, what poetry means to yeah. me, is it's an antidote. It seems to me that written language in some ways convinced us that we could explain everything mm -hmm. um, and that we tend to mm. over explain with right. written language or try to explain things or assert things that we can't possibly explain or assert. Right. Whereas poetry now leaves those contested for, yeah. spaces contested. That's right, argues yeah. for a space for mystery. Yeah. I think it does that. I think it has always done that. It has always been a kind of candle in the dark, really. Mm. You know, It's a different kind of illumination from everything else that we're explaining. Sure. But I think what I would actually call our greatest innovation is one that came much later, 
much, much later, only showed up in the 19th century and then was probably codified in the 20th century, um, which is the idea of universal human rights. Mm. Is probably, if we can come closer to making good on its promise, it will be the greatest thing we ever did as a species. Yeah. You know, the idea that you may not, to begin with, you may not kill even the enemy without cause, which throughout history you've always been able to do anyway. Right. And then gradually through that, towards a reduction in the actual fact of enmity itself. Right. You know, so I think the concept of human, universal human rights combined with the, uh, the peace movement itself in combination might be the greatest thing we ever did as human beings because animals would never, ever come up with that. And airplanes are great and computers are great <laughs> and everything, but airplanes, like within three years of the invention of the airplane, Italy's bombing Tunisia from the air. You know, I mean... Yeah, yeah. So, so all the other tools can be turned to... Not, not all of them, but I mean, they te technical feats can just be turned to evil use. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and good. But, but the, co the conceptual victory of actually saying, regardless of whether this person looks like me, speaks my language, right. likes me, or any of that stuff, to deprive this person of their life is unjust. I, I want to go, I, this is a much longer conversation, but we'll just sure. touch on it. I mean, it's so fraught. I mean, I guess I want to kind of go into this in the context of like what's going on in the Middle East right now. Mm -hmm. America's crazy. You write about Obama's drone mm -hmm. program in the book, which like America kind of only knows this much about. Yeah, My fingers are held a centimeter yeah. apart. Only recently has any of the information really been yeah, released. Yeah, the drone playbook just came out. Yeah, yeah, it hasn't been effectively parsed. Nor is it honest. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, you know. But so, we are in this situation right now. I mean, I always get into this conversation. My wife is Turkish. You know, we talk about the the situation over there. We've created all of these enemies. That's we right. are radicalizing people every That's day. That's right. That's right. There is also this phenomenon of ISIS and Al-Shabaab and yeah. Al-Qaeda uh, and various et, places, et cetera. Yeah. These are monsters in our world. They exist sure. now, however yeah. they were created. They're, right, but they, they do are, exist. They're they monsters, monsters. Yeah. And the question is, like, what, maybe this is just kind of an American, like, I want to be Superman kind mm -hmm. of nonsense or something, but I'm just like, what should we do? What should we you do? Know, in the should face we do nothing because yeah. we fucked up so bad in the past? You know, should we just like kind of not be involved? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is that for certain situations, I'm not speaking to any specific situation right now, but first, for certain situations, nothing is actually an option. And right. people seem to be very, very allergic to this idea. But sometimes, actually, you need to do nothing because it's a nightmare that's out of your hands. Right. And doing something can make it worse. Okay. In certain situations. Sure. Like you're not the world police. You don't yeah. have to necessarily go and like... Yeah. Or even something. even the world police, you're not. But even if the even the world police doesn't always have to do something. <laughs> right, right. Sometimes you can just let it be. <laughs> right, right. You know? Right. Um, you don't have to invigilate every single situation. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, I think what's actually really, really important is to say, what are the messes we're making today that we're going to be kicking ourselves for 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we don't have a mental reset. 
that will allow us to avoid making those mistakes. And we make new kinds so, of mistakes. Right. Like so, so when we focus on like what we really need to do now is to is defeat ISIS. But you know, 10 years ago we were saying, what we really need to do now is defeat Al-Qaeda. And, and before and, that, if I may interrupt, it was, we need to really defeat communism, which right. is how we armed Al-Qaeda in the first place. Exactly, yeah. so 10 years from now, probably won't be ISIS, it'll be somebody else. That is worse, and we really need to defeat. I'm not saying we don't need to defeat ISIS, I'm just saying this sort of like mechanical, one-track mind policy making just makes the world worse and worse and worse. We still have not dealt with the fact that we tend to have extreme disregard for lives that are not American. So that's, that's the way I would approach it. I would say, why do their lives not matter? Why are we at war in Libya right now? We've started bombing in Libya. Who are we bombing? Who are, what's the collateral damage? I mean, who got radicalized last week that we don't even know about? But like next week, if somebody detonates a huge bomb in uh, Madison Square Garden, We'll be like, oh my God, it's ISIS. And then it turns out actually it's not ISIS. It's like somebody in Libya whose like, village got wiped out because we, we have this habit of even going to war without getting congressional approval. We'll be like, why do they hate us? Right. Like, you're, you're actually bombing somebody's country right now to solve a problem that you think you can bomb your way out of. So, it's so horrible when these things happen here. And maybe going with my, my Pollyanna-ish dream vision <laughs> of peace really being like a serious innovation in our world, maybe we'll get to the point where, when that news came out last week that we had started bombing Libya, the streets should have been full with people saying, what the hell? Really, again? What oversight? What plan? What reconstruction? You just start bombing because, oh, ISIS is there now? Who yes, this, yeah. ISIS is there and it's also one of the most populous countries in Africa. I mean, it's full of people. So who else is dying in these bombs? Mm -hmm. And what are you doing to help those people? So I have a very healthy respect for complexity, which is why <laughs> I will sometimes just be like, you know, I mean, Obama had a very unpopular approach to the Syria problem, which was to do very little. I would have liked to see him do other things, to the side in other ways, but I'm sure glad that we did not go full scale into that war. Yeah, it was a bold move on his part. Because against a lot of opposition. From because him. if you had just like thrown $2 billion in weapons to the good rebels, all of that would be in the hands of ISIS right now. The short-sightedness is a little surprising. I mean, it's just a little surprising. It's not like these presidents don't know history. You know, it's not like, I mean, these people are actually, educated but in actually, history. But actually, it's that they don't. They ought to know at least the history of their own country. Like, But even Obama doesn't know history, you know. I mean, they really do not know history. They don't, not only do they not know what has ha happened in the past, they don't know what's happening right now. You know, I mean, the fact that, you know, George W. Bush and apparently his advisors did not know the difference between Sunni and Shia, extremely deeply consequential. The fact that they did not know that by removing Saddam, you strengthen Iran and Shia militias, it's just dumb. You know, all you needed was one professor who was an expert in the, air, in the region. And I'm not talking about Bernard Lewis, who had like neocon aspirations. Right, right. You know, so yeah, I should say they know history from the perspective of American exceptionalism and from the perspective of... And that is of, it. Yeah. Nothing yeah. like fully grounded that actually takes, gives proper credence to people 
I mean, if we knew history, we would not be bombing yeah. Libya right now. We would not be bombing Pakistan or, or Yemen. Yeah. So there was it's, something it's in hilarious. your in your book where you're you're talking about James Baldwin. Yeah. I think um, being in Switzerland. Yes, that's right. And he he kind of rattles off a list of the cultural artifacts of you know of, West Western, yeah, Western Europe. Europe, and you point out in kind of unpacking that you point out art and statuary and so forth from Africa, I guess, from... Yes, yeah, West Africa. Uh, West Africa, yeah, that I was completely unaware of, yes, not yeah, surprisingly, yeah. considering that that's your point. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. But you're saying that, you know, like, I don't know, how many years ago are we talking about? Is this yeah. centuries and centuries yeah, ago? Yeah, the 14th century. That you the have this century, sophisticated, yeah. evolved, yeah. you know, forms of art that that are just but, not kind of considered when you that's know, right and those techniques mind. were not even present in renaissance europe they had to be brought back yeah they had been known in ancient greece but then they'd been lost and meanwhile in 13th 12th 13th 14th century west africa like this very intricate bronze casting and hyper realistic sculptures yeah were present yeah and people don't think about that no we don't you know, know we, about it at we all we certainly don't uh we certainly don't associate african sculpture with ancient hyper realism but no it's, it's certainly there we yeah. associate it with tchotchkes that people bring right right safari, precisely I so i mean you're sort of sort of taking the lives of others seriously is just one of the foundational ethical positions uh, that the other is as you are and that is what we have sort of designed our constitution around Right. And I think we need to make it truly international. I find the American uh, presidential election season very, very tedious, in part because it is about American exceptionalism. The idea On both that, sides, yeah. Yeah, that these sort of these liber liberal concepts of human rights and freedom and individual autonomy only apply to people who happen to have an American passport. Fully agree there. Um, all right, shall we see what the next sure. surprise clip is? This one is... Jacqueline Woodson, she writes books for young adults, sure. but also adults, and this is her talking about literary criticism. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. In terms of criticism, here is how I deal with it. And this is having written 32 books. The first time I ask people to read my work, I say, tell me only what you love about it. And they say, you know, I love Jeremiah. I love that you centered this book in Bushwick. I love whatever it is. And then I get all excited. I go back and write more. And then the next time I say, ask me three questions. And then the three questions are, why does he get killed? Why um, do they fall in love? Why does he end up in the witness protection program? Whatever the questions they have, that makes me go back and realize I haven't explained stuff enough and write more. It really is fragile, right? When you first put your words out into the world and for someone to jump on them and start critiquing or criticizing them right off the bat can be devastating. So for even for me at this stage, it has to be incremental and always starting with praise, lots and lots of praise, and then getting to 
the nitty-gritty and so I I think it's important to show your work to people you trust and love and I think it's important to read your work out loud to hear it and hear where it feels safe and unsafe I am somebody who believes very strongly in being edited and in fact it was the process over the past few years of having essays that were edited by others and seeing how how that helps my work get better. Was there like a learning curve there for you in terms of getting comfortable with getting feedback from other people or have you always been just someone that is open to that? You know, it's interesting. There's not so much of a learning curve in it for me, actually. It's, um, I deeply appreciate it now, but I think I got to that pretty early. What happens is that within each piece there's a lear learning curve. Okay. When my editor first sees it, I'm still nervous. Not only that they'll hate it, but that they might say something that hurts me in some way. Because, you know, I know the first draft is not great, but I still fear that somebody is going to come back to me with an attitude like I've somehow wasted their time and given them something to read that's not good enough. Right. And that happens with every single piece that I, that I wrote <laughs> for The New Yorker, that I write for The Times. I know that this stuff is going out to the huge subscriber base of The New York Times. I want to get it right. And so the idea that, oh, you know, you know, the reaction I fear the most, which I've never gotten, but it's one I fear the most, is sort of like annoyance. Like, oh, this doesn't work. This is annoying, <laughs> you know? Why, why, I mean, I, not to play armchair psychiatrist, but why do, you, why do you think that bothers you so much, the idea of annoyance as opposed to because another reaction? I think because I'm very interested in making sure I'm worthy of my, of my megaphone of having this, you know, like three million people read the Times. Right. You know? Right. I don't want to write in a way that is uninteresting or self-indulgent. And at the same time, you've got to always risk that because you can't write in a boring way. I can't always play it safe. So I have to write things that are, quote, self-indulgent a little bit. Right. Because it has to be sort of personal and intense. So finding that right balance is always a task. Each piece I write goes through about 10 drafts. And that has become such a professional, such a pleasurable process for me. You know, when I teach students, I let them know that nobody has a great first draft. But you have to be the kind of person who really enjoys editing, especially in the later f stages, like refining it. But still, for me, the process does have to be sort of praise and I want them to get what I'm doing, my editor, I want my editors to understand what I'm going for, and then to start suggesting in a very judicious way what is not working. Right. And also to leave open the space for disagreement about that. Yeah, there's that thing. I mean, you write the thing, and initially at least, I don't know about you, but for me it's like, I have made this wonderful new thing in yes, the world. That's you know, right. you may, I mean, you say well, no, one, a, no one has a good first draft, but you no feel one has like a good you first did. Draft. You well, feel like well, you, you know did. what you have when you have a first draft? You have a first draft. <laughs> right. What you didn't have before the first draft, you didn't have a first draft. <laughs> right. So the Im primary emotion there is relief. Yes. I know I need to write a 1,500 word piece. Guess what? Here's 1,500 <laughs> words. It's not good. 1,500 words, it's on its way, it exists. Right. So that's a relief. But then by the second draft, for sure, the disgust has sort of crept in. Because you, then you start seeing all the ways in which it fails. Yeah, and, so, and I think there's no way around sort of 
vulnerability and trust in in that process you talk about wanting to get it right but you also have to be comfortable with the fact that you're not going to get it right the first time that you're going to have to be open to what the other person has to say to you so long as it's not destructive right absolutely Um, and and also just learning from them the lessons that the editor has to offer so that when you then go to another piece, it still doesn't solve your first draft issues because first drafts just can't be good. <laughs> but when you're editing your own work over time, over days, you ha- also bring some of those skills to bear on it. So there are a few pieces in the book that I wrote for online magazine, largely online, we do some print, called Do the New Inquiry. Sure. And I have editors there, but they do- they're not really doing line edits with me. I'm really editing my own stuff. Mm-hmm. But that's the space where I can write my freest and weirdest pieces. But I still have to bring the discipline of editing into them to make sure they just write, you know. So if I can get wonky for a minute, mm-hmm. like how do you go about then doing that? I mean, are you rewriting from a sentence? Are you cutting, you know, like do you go back and say, I'm I, cutting I, this whole I sort part of do all that. When, when um, I'm writing something that's not going to be edited by somebody else, yeah. I'm much more likely to begin in medias res. Uh-huh. I'm much more likely to leave out huge chunks of explicatory material. You mean in editing, yeah, in, in later drafts or initially? Actually, even in writing, uh-huh. initially, so that the editing in that case ends up not being so much structural as it is refining the language. So you're, um, not, you're not like completely overhauling it no, typically when you're your own no. editor? No. And meanwhile, while I'm, when I'm writing for The Times, I'm sometimes, very often, overhauling completely. And I like both kinds of pieces, actually. Um, I remember one piece I wrote this year. I wrote the first draft. It wasn't working for me, so I printed it out. It was about 1,800 words. I printed it out with a a double paragraph break between each paragraph. And then I took scissors (laughs) and cut each paragraph out (laughs) separately. And then I literally started, okay, like that, over here. Because the story I was telling was too straightforward. Right. So you just sort of did a Dadaist, like, re- <laughs> restructuring Yeah, ab- absolutely. <laughs> That's so scary to do, but there's magic in, kind of, in realizing that that works. Like I actually after used you- scissors and tape. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Is that, I mean, normally, I would, I, if I even want to do that kind of thing, I'll just do cut and paste. But in this case, it was driving me crazy, and I actually used scissors and tape. So, and, it, and I think the piece worked out well. Um, Though one last thing to say yeah, about yeah, editing. Yeah, that piece was a good piece, but it actually wasn't gangbusters. It wasn't like amazing, you know? Sure. I mean, I have written pieces that I'm really, really happy with. Like the Baldwin essay, that yeah. was edited in like the most intense but old-fashioned way. That was about 12 drafts. It's a 4,500-word piece. It was about three weeks of editing, mm. and I was sleeping and thinking of sentences. Mm-hmm. I got to know the piece so well that I knew every sentence, and every te- sentence was stress-tested. I'm usually not quite that meticulous. But in this one, I, I would wake up and think, ah, mm-hmm. that sentence at the beginning of page three needs one further beat. It was like sen- Flaubert's Mojus. Is, is that Flaubert, yeah. the, the Mojus, the right word? Absolutely. Like, yeah. For, I mean, that's why it opens the collection, because I really just worked mm-hmm. on it. So the exciting thing about writing and editing is that you actually don't know what will end up taking off. Right. You can get it up to a certain standard in defense of your own pride, but you're, you're not sure if you can get it to the point where it's like, wow. Well, and and, and I that think, doesn't happen too, too often. I think for me, the key thing is that tension between 
craft and spontaneity. I mean, maybe craft sometimes produces yeah. spontaneity, but somehow not killing the thing. You know, like sometimes you can work and work a thing to to the point where absolutely. there's no life in it. It's a, it's absolutely a challenge for me. It's a very <laughs> interesting one. The New York Times's audience is not the same as the New Yorkers. Uh-huh. Could probably get away with a bit more of a high tone as a New Yorker, for example. Not not the tone, but how much I can get away with not explaining. So if I'm writing for the New Yorker, I could say, you know, Henri Cartier-Bresson. Writing for the Times, I probably have to say French photographer Henri Cartier-Bresson, who co-founded Magnum. That already affects your sentence. Sure. And then if I'm writing for myself, I might just say Cartier-Bresson and not Henri Cartier-Bresson. And then I might even be able to mention some people who are more obscure without necessarily giving them like a CV history. So, but these, even something as minor as that impinges on your freedom. Because but you're also saying that you sort of like that impingement. I mean, that it's helpful to you as a writer to have those constraints it's sometimes. Good ha- it's good having both kinds of writing yeah, to yeah. do. Yeah. But really, my favorite kind of writing probably is where it's really free. Mm-hmm. Where then it becomes writing. It becomes art of writing. And what is moving the work forward is the pulse of the writing, the cadences. Right. But you know what? So maybe more in the novels and the novellas. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. But also in nonfiction, so long as there's freedom for it. Right. But you know, in my couple of years, now, almost a couple of years now, at the Times, I'm, I'm also learning to push more for privileges of freedom. There's still stuff I can't do, you know. It's still a family paper, uh-huh. and I still have to explain what I'm doing. Right. But um, I'm, I'm getting to do a lot more than I would have imagined possible. Some of those are negotiations of power, I suppose, as well. Absolutely, yeah. But it's also <laughs> it's, it's also trust with an editor I've worked with for a long time, mm. who really gets the work, and who has to defend the prerogatives of the newspaper, but who also appreciates me as a writer and wants me to do good work. Teju Cole, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank it's you. been wonderful speaking with you. I've Fantastic to talk time. to you. Thanks and, a lot. And uh, everyone out there, um, this is an absolutely staggeringly beautiful and insightful uh, collection of essays. Thank you. Called Known and Strange Things, and highly recommend it to anyone who likes to read or think about stuff. And that's it for another episode of Think Again. I hope you guys are enjoying the show as much as I'm enjoying these conversations. It is hot here in New York, hot and humid, uh, and we are just trying to keep the intellectual circuitry going in spite of the staggering, staggering heat. If you're liking the show, um, do me a huge favor if you haven't already and go over to iTunes and rate and review the show. Tens of thousands of people are listening every week. Um, And we have about 180 some reviews on iTunes, which is the biggest platform where most people listen. So if you could take five minutes and just go to iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or wherever you listen and rate or review us, it would help us a great deal. I would personally appreciate it. And we'll send you a personal thank you if you want to let me know on Twitter. Not that that's like the hugest thing in the world, but I would be very happy to send you a personal thank you. Next week, I'm joined by developmental psychologist Alison Gopnik. She is also an incredible writer, and she's written a new book about this phenomenon of parenting, contemporary parenting. I'll see you then.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.